Why don't we have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this time together this evening as we're studying, continue to study uh, how we got our Bible, and we pray that uh, as we do so, we'll gain a greater appreciation for your blessed providence over the scriptures throughout the ages and how fortunate we are to live in the day we live. We have such available access to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we're looking at page 45 in our notes, and we're finishing up on the King James Version here. Uh, we started last week, but first we have our quiz. So let's look at that. So the King James Version is so named because the king, because the king worked on the translation. False. Yeah, that's false because uh, he did uh, he did approve it, uh, but it was you know it was uh, proposed actually by the Puritans who met him when he came down from England, came down from Scotland. He had this, uh, when he came from Scotland, he stopped at various points and people hailed him and crowds came out. And then he had this conference at Hampton Court and the Puritans. They had a long list of objections to the problems in the Church of England they wanted to purify, but they went along with that they, the one the king accepted was a new translation. Number two, the King James, King James himself actually preferred the Geneva Bible. Remember that? No, he didn't actually. The Geneva Bible was a very Protestant, Reformed Bible done, you know, by the exiles from England who were in Geneva under Calvin. And John Knox came back to Scotland, started a Reformation there. And the Geneva Bible was the preferred Bible in Scotland, but he didn't actually like it. Uh, he was not much of a, of a real Protestant himself. And so he didn't really prefer the, the Geneva Bible. Three, the Geneva Bible was a completely new translation from the King James Version was a completely new translation from the original languages. No. No. It was a revision of the Bishop's Bible. And so, uh, and that was true for all these Bibles. So Tyndall made his translation, Coverdale, Matthew, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible. They all took from one another. They, they didn't start brand new, like say the NIV did. When the NIV was translated in the seventies, it started fresh, just right, you know, a brand new complete translation. Not, I'm not saying they didn't look at other translations, but they weren't trying to, to, uh, keep it as, uh, close to anything else as possible. Uh, the King James, the actual, uh, instructions for the King James version said that they were not supposed to alter it any more than possible. Four, the marginal notes in the King James version sometimes made reference to, I can't see what it says, to readings of other Greek manuscripts. That's true. There were about 8,000 notes and they were different categories. We talk about those notes on page 44, what kind they were. <clears throat> and that's an interesting point. All this is, I bring this up because the King James version people only like to make people think that there's only one, there was only one Greek text until modern times <clears throat> that came from the apostles and the translators of the King James translated that one text. And there was no variation, no manuscripts, which is not true. By the time the King James was translated in 1611, there were a number of manuscripts around and they were, they actually have in their margin reference to other manuscripts. So this, the point is to try to show that the King James only position is not genuine. It's not true in that point. Five, the King James version was widely popular from its original publication in 1611. No. No, I said false on that. Uh, the Geneva Bible was the Bible, uh, 1560 that came to England and was very popular for almost a hundred years in England because it was widely available. You could get small, cheap versions of it. And people who wanted to read the Bible were very Protestant, very reformed. They, they weren't church of England, high church, Catholic kind of people. And so they loved the Geneva Bible. It had all kinds of notes in it, uh, like a study Bible. 
So the King James Version, even though I've said it was really superior to the Geneva Bible as far as translation and accuracy and other things, uh, it took a while. It took a number of years, 30, 40 years before the King James Version became the dominant force that it became. Six, the King James Version replaced the Bishop's Bible as the authorized version in the Church of England. I said true to that. And we often hear the King James Version is the authorized version. What does that authorized version mean? It just meant that <clears throat> Henry VIII, when he broke from Rome and formed the Church of England, he um, um, auth- he authorized a Bible to be put in the church. And the uh, the first Bible that was authorized to be put in churches was the Great Bible. And then the next authorized version to be put in churches and read from on Sunday morning was the a great uh, the Bishop's Bible, and then the King James Bible as the official Bible of the Church of England replaced it. All right, so that's our quiz. We're looking at page forty-five. We just want to continue talking about revisions of the King James Version, and um, let's see here. I have to go down here to advance this or not. Okay. So uh, I say here in 1611, when the King James Version was published in 1611, there were actually two printed editions with 450 variations in the biblical text. These are commonly called the he and she Bibles from their respective readings in Ruth 3.15. Either he went into the city and she went into the city. The he edition is commonly believed to be the first and the she the second. You can see that in this 1611 that I have uh, made a screenshot from, it's a, that's the he version. Uh, but there has been some debate about that over the years because in modern times, he, you know, 1611 Bibles have been found. Some had he here, some had she. There were other variations but that's how you tell, that's how you could easily tell them apart. Just look at Luke 3.15 and see whether it's a he or a she Bible. So there were even modifications in, in 1611. So when King James only people, you know, I'm beating this dead horse about the King James, but when the King James only people say 1611 King James, well, which one? There's actually, you know, a couple slightly different editions. 1612, there were some minor changes. 1613, 413 improvements. Then we get a major revision. Again, the King James, the only people will say, I'm using the, I want the 1611 King James. Well, they don't have it in their hands, and I'm going to explain why. Because there was a revision in 1629 at Cambridge, sponsored, you know, run by Cambridge University, the two big universities in England, the two most important ones. Larry's in there is, are the Cambridge, welcome Larry and Cambridge and Oxford University. And so there was a revision made in 1629. And I've just listed a couple of examples. Most of these are just often corrections, uh, sometimes just mistranslations or misprintings, uh, misunderstandings, uh, like Jeremiah 49.1, inherit God changed to inherit Gad. So God was a mistake, just a, uh, you know, it, it talks about inheriting Gad, which is not the same as inheriting God. So they corrected a lot of these errors. You, you can imagine translating a Bible. It's very hard to get all the errors out. Uh, I've had NIV Bibles uh, since the 80s, and I should have kept, and I think I still have one that that has a, has a printing error. I mean, I've got, in the book of Acts, it's got a, print, a printing error that, you know, eventually they correct. So even uh, new Bibles that come out can often have a printing error. They're very hard to discover uh, these minor problems. Then there was a second revision in 1638, uh, Cambridge revisions from Drs. Goad, Mead, Ward, and Dean Boys. Now, the reason why I mention that is because Boys and Ward were members of the original translation committee. And again, the King James, only people say the King James was the greatest, it was done by the greatest scholars, never to be changed. Well, here are the original translators willing to revise it. They're willing to make revisions. 
And so you can see the kind of examples. I've got Job 3.15 and um, Mark 5.6, but there's actually books that have these whole listed. Third major revision of 1762 by uh, Dr. F.S. Paris. It was limited circulation because a large portion of it was destroyed. The one we're most interested in is G, uh, the fourth major revision, 1769 revision by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. Now, that's the edition we have today. That is, if you buy a King James Version somewhere, you're picking up a 1769 fourth edition by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. And on the next page, 46, you'll see the kind of changes from 1611, 46, the top of page 47. I've got a whole list. There's hundreds of them, but... I've listed a lot of them where it does change the meaning, like Genesis thirty nine sixteen, until her Lord came home until his Lord. Well, that's, that's different, you know. Um, the Deuteronomy 26, 1, I listed one like that because the 1611 said, which the Lord giveth. And the modern King James says, which the Lord thy God giveth. One of the things the King James only position commonly barks about is, these new Bibles leave out words. They leave out Christ or they leave out something. Uh, the truth is, of course, if, if they weren't in the original, that's why they were added later and the King James has them. But here's a case where if you were a King James only person, you could say that, well, my Bible says the Lord thy God, but the original said the Lord giveth. So, you know, the, the original has less words. It has, it's less holy. It doesn't say thy God. That's the point I'm trying to make here. So you can look at a lot of these and they're just corrections, uh, to different things. Um, and, and, but they change the meaning. Uh, I mean, Luke, uh, Ezekiel 311 says unto thy people, unto the children of thy people. That's different meaning. That's, it's not a huge difference, but it's a difference in meaning. So these are changes in meaning from 1611. So people are not using the 1611. If you look on page uh, 47, there's, that's another example, that last one, 1 John 5, 12, because if you pick up a track by a King James only person, it's always going to be a track that points out where the, like the NIV leaves out Christ or leaves out God or leaves out something that's a divine word. But you can see from 1 John 5, 12, that, the original, the original 1611 does not have the son of God. It has, he hath not the son hath not life or he that hath not the son of God. So if you were, you could criticize the original 1611, the way King James only people do. Now, how many changes have actually been made? There's been a number of studies of this. One commonly cited is the American Bible society. They say 24,000 changes. Now, that's not real meaning changes. 1490, 1,493 that affect the meaning. A, a more accurate count, well, at least a good count, is by a guy named Rick Norris. I know Rick, and he was done a lot of work on the King James issue. And he wrote a book uh, called Today's King James. On he counts to 2024. I mean, it's hard to know who's really accurate on this. But the point is, the the modern editions are not exactly like the 1611. And if you really want to get into the weeds on this, uh, you can look at the modern King James versions are commonly put out by Oxford University or Cambridge University. And if you, the Oxford and Cambridge editions don't even agree. There's actually some slight differences among those two editions. So I beat that enough. But I'll mention... Uh, uh, some problems here, uh, number 19 here uh, on page 47. Uh, there are still errors in the King James Version today. I once wrote an article for the Journal of the Detroit Seminary, errors in the King James Version. That didn't make us too popular, <laughs> but I, we did. Uh, so there's still, that was back in the heyday of the really the King James only day, but there's still errors. So Matthew 23, 24. This is, this is, uh, the King James says strain at a gnat. Uh, I'm gonna sit y'all down here a little. So, if you look at the King James, you blind gods which strain at a gnat. 
So strain at a gnat suggests, you know, straining at, looking at, trying to look intently, strain at a gnat. What does that mean? Well, the truth is the Greek word, as I say here, I don't know if I say, uh, yeah, I say there's no textual problem here. All Greek manuscripts have the Greek word that means strain or filter out. And all previous English versions had strain out. So like Tyndall had strain out, great Bible, strain out, Geneva, strain out, bitch. So why does the King James Version have strain at here? Well, it has strain at simply because the printer or somebody made an error. You know, somebody uh, just made a slight error and it just never got corrected. <laughs> Even in our King James Versions today, it still says strain at a net. And, and that's kind of a common expression. People says, oh, he's straining at a net or something like that, which means, you know, he's, he's too critical. He's, he's too critical, but he's straining at a net. It's become an, become an English expression, but the, the text really says to strain something out, trying to get a gnat out of your food, but swallow a camel. Uh, another one that's never been corrected, and King James only people try to do all kinds of things with this one. Um, this is Hebrews 10.23, where, uh, as I say, uh, well, I said the strain out on that is a printing error, but there is Hebrews 10, 23. The King James has confession of, uh, of faith. Uh, I actually don't have it down here, do it? <laughs> I got the King James says profession of faith. Don't, don't I? The King James has confession of faith. You wonder what happened to my, t- my slide here is not very good, is it? <laughs> it was a, a scribal error. I got a scribal error on my slide. I, I wonder yeah, how. Yeah, really. Printer's I'm, error. Not your fault. <laughs> no, it's it's my fault, but that's a wonder I, that I haven't <laughs> seen that before. But it is true that the King James does say, let us hold fast the uh, confession of our, oh, I'm sorry. It's not, I'm sorry. It's faith, the word, not profession. Let us hold fast the confession. I say confession, but it's the word is faith. But back up here, it says, let us keep, Tyndall says, profession of our hope. Profession of our hope, profession of our hope, profession of our hope. The King James says faith, profession, our confession of our faith. I'm not sure which one I have to look at again. See, maybe I made an error on the slide or maybe I've got it wrong in the text here. But the point is, for some reason, the King James has the word faith there rather than the word hope. And uh, again, I say this is no uh, textual problem. All Greek manuscripts have the word hope, elpidos. So, uh all all Greek manuscripts have the word hope here. There's not a single Greek manuscript that has the word faith. Now, how that happened, why did the King James Version have faith there? I don't know. I assume it's just an accidental error. You know, when they're compiling their Bible, there's no previous Bible that has this. <laughs> uh, you know, the Bishop's Bible, Geneva Bible, the Greek text doesn't have it. Why, how did they get it? But I've seen... King James only people spend a lot of time defending this. And they'll try to say that this Greek word that means hope, el, elpis, elpidos, can be translated faith. Well, it's used 50 times in the Greek, in the, in the New Testament. And it's always translated hope. I guess uh, you looked it up, didn't you? Uh, I found, found. Oh, yeah. Did, what did you, what did you find? Well, it might, it says hope. Yeah. It says hope. And your King James? No, no, no. I don't have the King James. Oh, okay. I was, looking yeah. up, I was just looking up mine. <laughs> the yeah, I, would, I would just, uh, look, <laughs> you were looking at your NIV or something? I was looking at my NIV and it says yeah. hope. Yeah, it's, it's going to say hope also mm-hmm. because uh, that's what the word is. So in the King James, only people won't admit any minor problems like this. I don't do this to disparage the King James. It's been a very, it's very good translation overall. Not as good as modern translations because we've learned a lot in 400 years about Greek and Hebrew and translation. But, you know, I got saved <laughs> through the King James Version and, and, and many, many people have. So it's not a problem, uh, but to say that nothing can be improved upon. Remember, we read that section last week about the King James translators say in the preface, there's nothing that's done that can't be really improved upon. And they, and so that's what we're trying to do in modern translations. 
Well, that brings us then to the later modern period. We're in the modern period, and now we're up to 1780 and beyond. Um, so we're looking at 1769 is the current version of the King James Version. And so that continues to be used in the 1611, continues to be used. But over the years, you know, from 1611, especially in the 1700s, and especially in the 1800s, people began to have issues with the King James. Uh, and I say here at the bottom, page 47, that even though it was updated um, with a fourth revision, by the 1800s, people had dissatisfactions. There's two main dissatisfactions that people had with the King James Version. And the first was the archaic language. And that's, I think that's the big issue uh, for people today. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, why don't you use the, the King James Version at your church? Well, we don't because we want people to understand the Bible. And the best way is to have it in sort of current English. Remember the preface of you. There was a line in that preface to the King James. There's no reason why the word of God can't be current. They actually say that can't be current. So by having uh, the a current language, people can understand it better. So by, by, by the time you get to the 1800s, even people were, people were having trouble understanding the King James, which is now 250 years old. And I put some examples here, you know, at the bottom page 47. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Whatever that means. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. Some of these are funny, you know, like, what's going on? And page 48. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hither unto more than I? So, you know, the last one, uh, Luke 17, 9. I trow not. And the point is, you know, a person reading their King James Version, like m many of us did back in the day, we could read that verse a thousand times and never know what it means. With You know, because nobody says, hey, I think I'll look that word up in a dictionary and find out. Nobody really hardly does that. They just read their Bible through in a year and they don't. So that's one of the problems. The big pro In fact, that's the big problem with the King James Version. The real problem is archaic language. If we want people to understand their Bible, then it should be written in current English, uh, modern English, in uh, regular normal English. But there was also some uh, uh, question about the uh, Greek text. Um, there was a feeling that the Greek text was not the Greek text behind the New Testament was not as accurate as it could be. We've talked about that there are presently available extant that we can get our hands on, about 5,300 New Testament Greek manuscripts. And when the King James, when the Erasmus produced his first Greek New Testament, the Texas Receptus, we call it now, remember, uh, in 1516, um, he had only eight Greek manuscripts. Now, over the years, by the time the King James comes along, they've gotten... 20 or 30, they're all basically the same kind. They're not very old. There's no manuscripts from uh, 900 or 800 or 700 or 600 or 500 or 400 or 300. You know, there's no old manuscripts. And so uh, by this time, by the time you get to the 1800s, uh, late 1800s, new manuscripts are coming along. And so... Uh, I mentioned here in B, the TR continued to be commonly used Greek New Testament until the 1800s when many new manuscripts became available. So I want to just mention this chart here for a second because you see that word eclectic or critical text. So um, most all Bibles today every Bible today, except for one, the New King James Version. So we'll discuss that later on. The New King James Version uh, is translated from what's called the eclectic or critical text. Now, what does that mean? Eclectic means to make a choice between options. 
you're not you're not bound to one text or one manuscript. You're eclectic, which is what you would think you should be. You should look at all the manuscripts and try to examine them and decide what is the original. Uh, another way to call that is critical. And sometimes the word critical sounds bad because it sounds like you're criticizing the Bible. No, it's not criticizing the Bible. Critical just means to make a judgment, be critical to make a judgment. And so we're judging, we're looking at these manuscripts and by looking at all of them, we're trying to determine uh, various principles of textual criticism. We won't go into that, but you know, what is the original text? What, what was original? What did Paul say? What did, what did, uh, you know, Matthew originally say and so forth. And so later Bibles, the Bibles we're going to be studying now, except for one, and we'll see why that's true in a moment later. Uh, the revised version we're going to talk about now and later Bibles, uh, use, uh, uh, a Greek text that's based upon all the available manuscripts. And so I say here, I just mentioned, for example, Codex Alexandrinus, 5th century. So the King James Version didn't have access, King James translators didn't have access to any any manuscript, you know, before the year 1000. Now you've got 5th century manuscripts, 400. Uh, they, this was being discovered now. Uh, this was presented uh, to the by the Patriarch of Constantinople, King Charles I, in 1627, but too late for the translators of the King James Version. Codex Vaticanus. Now, these things get their name often by where they're found or located at. The Codex Vaticanus uh, was found, discovered, uh, in the Vatican Library at one point. So it's called Codex Vaticanus. It wasn't written by the Roman Catholic Church. It's 4th century. It's the year 300. Uh, so it has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church, except that there really wasn't a, a Roman Catholic Church in 300 <laughs> to speak of. You know, that we don't really get to sort of what we think of as the Roman Catholic Church till we get to Gregory the Great about 600 or so. But it's called Vaticanus because it uh, was discovered in the Vatican Library. Came to light in 1533, but was not studied until the late 1800s. So there's these older manuscripts that are coming to light in the, you know, now after the King James is translated. I mentioned a guy, uh, Constantine von Tischendorf. He was a famous scholar. Uh, he was went around the world looking for manuscripts. He goes to, uh, he discovered Codex Sinaiticus. It's called Sinaiticus. There's a lot of ways to pronounce this. Sinaiticus. Some people say Sinaiticus. Uh, because it was found on Mount Sinai. This is a, an old manuscript here. You can see it's like Vaticanus, 4th century. So Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, very old manuscripts, very well done, very accurately done, uh, professionally done. It's got four columns there. This uh, He found this on uh, St. Catherine's um, on uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, it's funny how that sometimes I can yeah, go back to this. So there's a monastery on the Sinai Peninsula, you know, south of Israel. Uh, you can go, you can, people can actually go there and there's a monastery there. And he went there and he discovered this manuscript. And some people accuse him of stealing it and giving it to the Tsar of Russia, but whatever the story is, he, he found it. So my point is, by the time you get to the, the late 1800s, there is a lot of uh, new discoveries. New manuscripts are being discovered and found, and Greek texts are being produced. And that is causing people to say, hey, you know, we should revise the King James because of its archaic language and because we could make a more accurate translation from these older manuscripts. I mentioned on uh, page 48 under number two there that uh, Ben Franklin, it's getting dark in my house here. Let me see if I can, that's going to be too much light or not. That's not the good kind of light, is it? I should cut the overhead light. Uh, ben Franklin uh, felt the King James was obsolete, I say here, offered samples of more readable renderings. John Wesley published a conservative revision of the King James in 1755 under this title, the New Testament notes for plain unlettered men who know, you know, nobody, we don't, 
These have never been popular. Noah Webster published a revision in 1833, but they didn't really affect, they didn't really change uh, the way churches were using the King James or individuals, but there were attempts. That brings us to page 49, the revised version. So uh, now we come to an actual revision of the King James, the 1769. Uh, I mentioned here, uh, the New Testament was done in 1881 and the Old Testament in 1885, the Apocrypha in 1895. Now, we're going to see these dates like this on every translation almost because what happens is when you get an official translation like the NIV, the ESV, they say, we're going to produce a translation. They start working on it. Well, the New Testament is one third the size of the Old Testament. So it gets done first. So they finish the New Testament and they usually publish it and let people look at it. And then when they publish the Old Testament, they combine them together and sometimes revise the, the New Testament. Then the Apocrypha, remember this is the Church of England. And though the Church of England does not say that Apocrypha is scripture, it is valuable uh, religious literature. And they have this tradition of reading the Apocrypha, <clears throat> even in church, in the Church of England, as a matter of fact. So uh, this is the next revision of the King James Version, the revised version of 1881. I usually say 1881 because that's the New Testament date, but there's later for the other ones. Uh, here's uh, Samuel Wilberforce, the uh, Bishop of Winchester. He called for a revision, and he's kind of the leading force behind this revision. A committee of 65 British scholars was chosen so to revise the King James. Again, they're not making a new translation, they're revision. What about the Americans? So I mentioned here, uh, on number three, a committee of 34 Americans uh, headed by Dr. Philip Schaff, who was a very famous scholar, uh, actually historian. He's written a very famous eight volume or so church history. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's available, uh, uh, on, you know, free now, but, uh, so they asked the Americans to join. They met in New York beginning in 1872, carrying on a transatlantic exchange of manuscripts with their United uh, Kingdom colleagues. So what they were hoping was they could get a translation that the Americans would accept and the British, because now we have different languages. And if you watch enough British TV like I do, that's all I watch is, you know, Downton Abbey <laughs> and, and Pride and Prejudice. If you watch British TV like we do, then they got a different language over there. You know, we, sometimes we have to say, what does that mean? What is that? You know, it's still, it's still, you know. So if you're trying to make a, a, a if you're trying to make a Bible that can then be stood by British and English, you know, that can be a little bit difficult sometimes. So they hoped that they could do that. And the Americans weren't really happy. So the British said, okay, you can put in an appendix uh, at the back of the revised version where you would, you know, where you would make changes. And so they did that. And by agreeing to uh, serve on this committee, the Americans agreed not to come out with their own version for a while. Uh, they said, you know, because they didn't want the Americans to to go back to America and just put these revisions in. I mentioned on page 50 here the principles that guide them, guided them, A, to introduce as few alterations as possible to the text of the authorized version consistently with faithfulness. Now, they tried to do that, but they did, uh, you know, use the Greek text, the current Greek text, which differed from the Texas Receptus because it's basically the current Greek text we use today and translations like the NIV, ESV, whatever. So they did try to bring the language up to date, get rid of some of the archaic language, but they did change in the New Testament. They did change the, uh, to the, to the older Greek text. And that is, that is the beginning of the King James only movement, as we'll see. I'm going to talk about that later on and some notes here, but that this, this particular Bible is what spurred what we think of today as the King James only movement. Not that it 
got real big then, but it's big in America, but it came later, but it came from this. So they have a whole list of, of principles here, how they're to do this. And these are good principles. They have a committee approach. <clears throat> they're going through, they're, they're trying to do good work. Uh, one of the negative things about it is they made a very literal translation too literal. And that it's a little, it's very, very literal, the most literal translation you can find. And that's not always a good thing. I don't think we'll talk about that later on at the end of the course. Now, I mentioned uh, on number five there on page 50, uh, the New Testament was published in England on May the 17th, 1881, and America on May the 20th, distributed by Thomas Nelson, which disposed of 250,000 copies by day's end, priced from 25 cents to $16. The revised version was copyrighted in England, but was under no restriction in the USA the same as the King James Version. But those Americans had agreed they wouldn't take this version and redo it for a number of years. Now, eventually they did, but they didn't do it right away. But the Americans could print it right away. So the Chicago Tribune and the Times, both papers published the entire New Testament in, on May the 22nd, 1881. Um, so here's a little that corner that I was up there in the right corner, you see the pious poor. It says, um, revised edition of the new Testament as it appears in this paper without charge. So the paper, you can get it. If you buy the paper, you can get it, but you can buy a, buy one for three cents or you can have it bound for 12 cents. So you can, for three cents, you can buy, they'll sell you a version <laughs> at the general supply store for three cents. And if you want it bound, it costs you 12 cents. And uh, I say here, 3 million copies were sold the first year. That's a pretty good number of copies. Uh, the New Testament departed from the Texas Receptus and gave preference to the older Greek manuscripts. And that was, as I say, we'll see the start of the whole thing. Number six, the Old Testament was published in 1885. The Apocrypha, though not part of the original, was completed in 1895. I say on number seven, the revised version departed uh, from the practice of printing every verse as a separate paragraph. It retains the verse numbers, but prints the text in sense paragraphs. So there you see it. It's like the NIV is today, which is really a better way to do it. Because when you look at first Corinthians chapter one, there by seeing the paragraphs, you see what's in context. You can see verse uh, seven is part of that paragraph and verse 10 is a new paragraph. Now, these are not inspired paragraph divisions, but they're often commonly agreed upon. So it's helpful to the reader to be able to look at a text in context, and the and the first context is a paragraph context. So uh, that was a really an improvement uh, uh, upon, I think, the King James, and it's a good thing. I say on, on page 51... The revised version was an accurate version and was widely used in as, as a Bible, a study Bible. But it never replaced the King James Version of the church. Even though three million copies were sold of the, you know, the first year, it didn't, it didn't replace the churches. Charles Spurgeon, probably Charles Spurgeon, the famous British Baptist preacher, summed up the situation when he said, the RV was strong in Greek and weak in English. It was actually over, overly literal. I don't know if you remember the preface of the King James Version, but it says, we're not going to translate the same Greek and Hebrew word the same every time. Because the same Greek word, uh, sometimes in different contexts, has a different English meaning. It doesn't always mean the same thing. You can't just translate the same Greek word by the same English word. That's what they did pretty much in the RV, which is a mistake. It's a huge it's a huge mistake as far as translation theory is concerned. Very, very, very huge. But they did it. And the, even so the King James, in that sense, was superior. They recognized that you just can't do that. There's no one-to-one correspondence between words of different languages. But they did, and that is a problem, and Spurgeon recognized it. Uh, uh, so the a, a reviewer here, the Times of London, the real problem with the selected company of revisers was that 
while it included the most eminent authorities of the time of the New Testament Greek, and included not men of letters versed in the rhythm, cadence, and euphony of good English. So that's something modern translations usually do, like the NIV. Got the NIV in a lot of trouble, I'll tell you this. But modern translations like the ESV, the NIV, they will commonly have somebody on their committee who is just an English stylist. They may not, you know, know Greek and Hebrew or anything like that, but they have a good sense of English style and composition and, and English language and so forth. And they can help out because those of us who are seminary guys who translate, we tend to translate quite literally. And sometimes it's not really normal English. So you can be helped out. When the NIV was done, they, they got the services of an, of a woman who, an English professor, forgot her name now, but she taught at Bob Jones at one time. And, uh, later she turned out to be a lesbian. <laughs> and, and, and so people who attacked the NIV use that as a basis. Oh, look who was on this translation committee. Well, she wasn't that when she, when she helped out, she just looked at the English style. You know, she was consulted to look at the English style, but the NIV, but because her name was there listed as one of the contributors, uh, she, you know, she got, she got, uh, the anti King James people use that as an argument to say, look what's wrong with that, you know? So, uh, that is a problem with committees. And sometimes you get sometimes somebody on the committee who later turns out not to be of a high character or something or whatever it might be. You can't, you always can't control that later on at the time. But, uh, that's one of the problems with the revised version is they didn't really take careful in the, here's another opinion says the revivers, the revisers ideal of faithfulness in translation was a meticulous word for word reproduction of the Greek text in English words, using the same English word for a given Greek word whenever possible, leaving no Greek word without translation into a corresponding English word, following the order of the Greek words rather than the natural order of the English and attempting to translate the articles and tenses with a precision alien to Greek English idiom. The result is the revised version is distinctly translation English. So it's not normal English. It's just what it's kind of, the, it's kind of the translation layer, as you know, that students often do when they're translating in seminary. It's just very literal word for word kind of translation. Now this kind I of, I always tra- like to be really nuanced with mine. Uh-huh. So I always try to be really nuanced. Where did you? <laughs> That's not usually rewarded in class. No, it's not. It's not often, unless you're in Dr. McCabe's class. It's not really <laughs> I won't rewarded. tell him you said that. <laughs> uh, so that is, that is a, that is a problem with the RV. Now it can be very helpful for people who know Greek, uh, and, and, and their, and their Greek is not perfect. They can look at the RV and they can sort of tell, okay, I can see what's happening with the Greek text because it's very literal kind of translation. So it has some helpful benefits. And I've listed there, uh, the 12, Romans 12, one and two. I kind of do that as we go through here just to see, uh, they didn't change that much, uh, from the, uh, King James, as you can see here on this particular, uh, verse, they kind of updated some of the archaic language and so forth in Romans 12, one and two. That version is not as important to us as this one is. The ASV, American Standard Version. So most of us have never heard, if, you know, if we know anything about translations, we don't really know much about the RV, but if we, we know, if we study translations a little bit, the ASV pops up quite a bit, American Standard Version. American Standard Version 1901. I say here the Americans who worked on the RV had to pledge their support to it and promise not to issue a, an edition of their own for 14 years. But in 1901, they prepared a revision of the RV using their preferences, 300 of them, that had been placed in the appendix of the RV. The ASV also eliminated more archaic words and phrases than the RV and was more in line with American usage. Now this Bible is much more popular than the RV. It's extremely popular. Now, as I'll say, it doesn't replace the King James, but I'll tell you about how popular it was in a moment as we go through here. Now here's one of the things they, they did that's, that was a little different. 
they departed from the normal preference of translating the Hebrew tetragrammaton Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, with Lord, substituting instead, uh, uh, substituting instead Jehovah. So what am I talking about here? Okay. So if you look at an Old Testament, if you look at your NIV, or you look at the King James, or you look at the ESV, or you look at almost any translation, you will notice in the Old Testament that the word Lord is written two different ways. Uh, one is capital L, then with small letters. And then one is uh, what we call small caps, L-O-R-D, or all caps. It's, it looks like it's in all caps. So they're both translated Lord, but there's actually two different words behind them. The one that's capital L with the small letters is the Hebrew word Adonai. What does that word mean? It means Lord. It means master. So it's a perfect translation. Lord, master, that kind of thing. The, The all capital Lord is actually a name you've probably heard Pastor Kenneth mention, Yahweh or Yahweh. Uh, that's a Hebrew word and that's a personal name and that's rather strange. Uh, that's the name of God. God says in the Old Testament that his name is, or he's called Yahweh or Yahweh. And, um, but modern translations, the King James, except for a few times, there's a few places in the King James, they don't, they don't, they don't put it down as Yahweh. Even though it's a personal name, it's like Bill or Larry or Val. This is a personal name, not a title. So Lord is a title. So, uh, so Psalm one ten one, for instance, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord. So this is David saying, the Lord Yahweh God says to my Lord, the Messiah. This is sort of like the Father speaking to the Son here. Uh, before we know much about the Trinity. The Lord says to my Lord, my, the, the messianic figure, set at my right hand. So God the Father is saying to the Son, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here's this tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton that I'm talking about. So what does tetragrammaton mean? It means four letters, right? Tetra four, gramma letter is the Greek word for letters, tetragrammaton. So, in Hebrew, it's there on the left. There's the Hebrew letters. It's If you put that into English, it comes out Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. If you remember from earlier on in our discussion, we said that Hebrew was not written with vowels. You know, early on, it was not written with vowels. It wasn't until you had the Masoretes particular in the ninth century, 800s, who put the vowels in that we have now. So uh, the name of God, when it's given in the Old Testament, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in our Bibles, it's actually the, the letters Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton. And uh, so when it says, you shall not take the name of your Lord, of the, uh, the name, name, name of the Lord in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord that's actually saying you shall not take the name of YHWH in vain. You shall not take the name Yahweh. Now you notice I'm putting vowels in there and I'll explain that in a minute. But you shall not take this YHWH in vain. That's what the commandment is saying. Don't take my personal name like Bill or Joe or whatever, you know. And that's what that is. Now, how do we get Jehovah out of that? Because I call it Yahweh. And you'll hear Pastor Ken say Yahweh sometimes if you've heard him from sermons. Why are we saying Jehovah? Well, because Y and J are very similar, especially like in German, the W and V in German, you know, how, if you've had some German, you know how it works. So in some, uh, this YHWH came into German, especially as JHVH. Now, <clears throat> That's combined with the vows of Adonai. Now, what, what's happening here? So you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. So what did the Jews do about that? How do you not take the name of Yahweh in vain? You don't use his name. 
You don't pronounce his name. You don't say Yahweh like I just did. No Jew will ever say Yahweh. They won't even say the name God. Now, if you want to find a, if you want to find out who's a Jew on the internet, an Orthodox Jew, look at what they write. They'll have G underline space D. They don't even write the name G O D out. They're so meticulous. They write G and then an, an underspace, a space below the line, you know, underline and then D. So Jews never pronounce the name Yahweh. So what did they do when they read their Bibles and it said, you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. They substituted the word that means Lord. They substituted Adonai. So if you go to the synagogue, well, you wouldn't hear it today, but in ancient times, they would say, you shall not take the name of Adonai in vain. Well, they're just putting Lord in there. Now, if you go to a synagogue today, they won't even say that. They'll just say Shemai. You shall not, you shall not take the name of the name in vain. They, they won't even, they're just very careful. They never pronounce this name. They never write, you know, they just, they just don't want to break the commandments, Orthodox Jews. But, you know, by saying it, Yahweh or Jehovah, we're not mispronouncing it. Now, here's what's happened. So what the Jews did when the Masoretes came along, when they, when they put the vowel points in under Yahweh, they said, well, you're never, you're never supposed to say Yahweh, never supposed to pronounce that. So when they put the vowel points in, they put the vowels of a different word. They put the vowels of Adonai. Remember the word Adonai just means Lord or master. So when a Jew looked at the Hebrew text, if you look at the Hebrew text today and you look and you see YHWH, it'll have vowels underneath it, but it's the vowels of a different word. And so if you know, if you're, you're supposed to be smart enough to know that when you see YHWH and those vowels of Adonai, you're not supposed to say Yahweh, you're supposed to say Adonai. You're supposed to substitute another word, Adonai. Now when Christians started getting into the Bible in the 1500s and the 1600s, they didn't know that. <laughs> they weren't smart enough. They didn't know what was going on. They thought that those vows were the real vows of Yahweh. And they, they created this word Jehovah from that. So Jehovah is an artificial word made from the vows, Y-H-W-H. You could say Yehovah. If you use the, the YHWA, you could say Yehovah. So Jehovah is an artificial name uh, created by Christians who didn't know any better at the time that they were taking the vows of Adonai and putting it with the word Yahweh. Is this making any sense? Okay. Yes. <laughs> so uh, YHWH equals Yahweh. So Jehovah's Witnesses don't even know that their their name is <laughs> not really. They should be, you know, Yahweh's. <laughs> now we don't know for sure that that Yahweh pronunciation is correct. Now the vowels A and E there that we have in that name Yahweh had been figured out through a complex studying other words, other names, how it's used in in combination. So. But that's not certain. That's the best scholarly guess that God's name, that his personal name was pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh. Uh, probably the H was not silent like a vowel extension, uh, making the A long, but probably Yahweh. But you'll hear a lot of people say Yahweh. So that's what's going on with that name. And so uh, the, but the, the ASV translator said, Hey, we don't want to translate that Lord with all caps. You know, we don't want to do what the King James did. We want people to know this is really God's name. This is his personal name. So we're going to say, then Jehovah says to my Lord. You see what they did? Then Jehovah says to my Lord. Now we're going to see another translation in the 20th century here called the Holman Christian Standard Bible went back to that idea again. I'll show you what they, what they did with this same idea. They went, tried to go back to that and put in Jehovah or Yahweh. So you could say, then Yahweh says to my Lord, but so why do we say Lord there? If it's a personal name, why do we say Lord? Because we're sort of following the Jewish tradition of, we don't want to take 
God's name in vain. So it's just a tradition. It's a tradition that Yahweh, uh, because it's a sacred name of God, will just use Lord as an, as, uh, to stand for it. Capital L. So it's a, it's a tradition that goes back, you know, 500 years or more and modern English translations and other translations, other languages have done the same thing. So, but when you see that capital all L O R D in the, on the Old Testament, know that you're actually saying Yahweh, God's personal name says to my Lord. So, uh, that's what happened with the, uh, with the ASV here. Um, so let me just finish up the ASV on page, next page. You can see the kind of changes, the British wording and the American wording that, uh, you know, that they, 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 they made a, they made vast, good improvements. Those were good improvements. Uh, not so sure about Lord Jehovah for Lord, but they did. Holy Spirit instead of Holy Ghost. You can see that kind of thing. Uh, so they made some changes from, they kept, they got rid of some of the archaic language. Um, I say number three, it was reparagraph. Marginal readings were reduced. Four, the ASV had a l- little better readable style than the RV and became much more popular in America than the RV did in England. It was accepted by the Presbyterian Church in 1901 to replace the King James Version and widely used in Bible colleges and seminaries. So before we had all these Presbyterian denominations we have today, like the PCUSA, PCA, there was one Presbyterian church in America, you know, primarily uh, Northern Southern, but still uh, the Presbyterian church decided we're going to use this instead of the King James Version. So mainline churches moved away from the King James Version in the early part of the you know the 20th century, mainline a lot of mainline churches like the Presbyterian Church, and they replaced it with the King James Version. This version was extremely popular in scholarly circles. So at Southern Baptist Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, if you if you were there in the 1930s, the 1920s, you were. This was the Bible you used. This was the Bible on campus. I had a professor when I was in seminary who was blind. And uh, he went to Southern Baptist Seminary to get his doctorate, even though he was blind. And he was memorized. He wanted to memorize the New Testament so that when he taught, he was going to teach. He wouldn't have to, uh, uh, you know, look at it, try to read a Braille Bible or something. He could just quote it. And he was convinced by all of his friends, scholars, professors, that he should memorize the ASV of 1901 rather than the King James Version because they said the King James Version is going to die out and it'll be dead and the ASV will be the Bible that everybody will be using. Well, it didn't happen. <laughs> and he regretted it all his life because when he taught, and I heard him teach many times, he would have to say, now I'm going to quote the Bible, but it's going to be different from the King James. But, you know, I'm not misquoting. <laughs> it's just because he's quoting the ASV of 1901. So the ASV of 1901 was an extremely popular translation of its time. Now we'll see in the future that this is where the new American standard comes. I'm just jumping ahead. So very popular in our time is the new American standard version, a very good translation, 1963, 1971. Uh, that many people use, uh, inner city, I think still uses new American standard, I believe switched to it. And, uh, but it's, it comes from that tradition, revised version, American standard version, new American standard. In fact, the new American standard version is being updated right now. And, uh, a new edition is supposed to be out. It's been announced year after year after year, but keep being put it off. Okay. I think that finishes our session tonight. Thank you so much for, uh, joining in we should we should be using the same uh link next week too also i think probably okay and i think that's right recording and then i have two questions okay go ahead you want you don't want to stop the recording (laughs) oh i can stop the recording but go ahead Uh, do, do you suggest we read the apocrypha do do you ever do you ever have i mean is that something we should look into or no 
I don't really suggest no. it unless you just have a great interest, you know, and just, just what was happening and, and what, what Jews, it gives you an, in, an insight. Some of those books like Tobit and, uh, that we looked at and Susanna, they gave you some insight into Jewish culture, Jewish times, but you know, it's, it's not extremely valuable to read unless you just have a great interest. I wouldn't particularly, okay. we've got, we've got a lot better literature back in 1600. They just didn't have much religious literature. We've got a lot better stuff to read than that. So I wouldn't. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll All right. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye.